This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will be a question session reviewing spine questions related to degenerative cervical conditions like cervical myelopathy and cervical radiculopathy. The questions that will be reviewed appeared on the spine number two specialty exam on the OrthoBullets virtual curriculum. We will include a link in the show notes to take the exam if you have not done so already. The questions included in this episode will be reviewed by Dr. Derek Moore, who is the founder of OrthoBullets and a practicing orthopedic spine surgeon at Santa Barbara Orthopedic Associates. In this first question, we have a 56-year-old woman who presents for initial evaluation of neck pain, which is worsened by activity for the last several years. On exam, she has five out of five strength in her bilateral upper and lower extremities. She has normal gait. She has no difficulties with manual dexterity. When you do a physical exam, reflex testing shows that she does have some hyperreflexivity in the bilateral Achilles tendons. Radiographs are shown, MRI is shown. Okay, so first let's look at these imaging studies. Here you see a lateral radiograph of the cervical spine. There's really nothing abnormal about this, just some slight degenerative changes that you'd expect to see. On MRI, once again, here you can see that she has some degenerative changes with a disc osteophyte complex at 2, 3, 4, at 5, 6, but really no significant spinal cord compression. If you look at her axial image at this level, again, you can see a disc osteophyte complex here with some impingement into the spinal canal. But again, I would consider this to be only mild, potentially moderate spinal stenosis at this level. So to get this question right, we need to understand the treatment for cervical myelopathy. Now, on a high level, there's two treatment options, either observation or surgical treatment. Now, it's important to recognize that when you're looking at cervical myelopathy, you can't really look at radiographic imaging alone. You really have to look at the physical exam and ask them questions about functional impairment. One thing is clear that we've kind of realized is that it's really patients that have functional impairment that is progressive that benefit most from surgery. So in this patient, we have an individual who's fairly young Though she has some physical findings of hyperreflexivity, she has no functional impairment and she's really only complaining of some neck pain. So in this situation, I think it's indicated that you proceed with observation alone. Surgery is really reserved, as I said, for people who have functional impairment and it's progressive. So going back to the question, again, this was a woman, she didn't have significant functional impairment, and they're asking us how we would treat this. So I think the correct answer is physical therapy, which is answer five. This is really based on the study by Katanaka et al. that did a prospective study looking at people with mild to moderate cervical myelopathy, and they found at three-year follow-up, patients with mild disease, there was no significant difference between those treated without surgery and those treated with surgery. So let's go to the next question. Okay, the next question on cervical myelopathy. Figures A through E show the neutral lateral radiographs and corresponding T2-weighted MRI of five patients with symptoms and physical findings consistent with cervical myelopathy. In which of these patients would a cervical laminoplasty alone be contraindicated as surgical treatment? So to get this question right, you need to understand the treatment indications or the surgical indications for cervical myelopathy, and more specifically, the indications for the different operations. So when I think of treatment of cervical myelopathy, I think it basically breaks into three different categories. 
There's anterior cervical decompression and fusion, which is indicated when there's one to two levels of disease. There's posterior laminectomy and fusion and laminoplasty, which are the second group of treatment, which are indicated when there's significant functional impairment and there's neutral or lordotic alignment. And finally, there's a com combined anterior and posterior procedure. So this question is asking about the contraindications for posterior lamino laminoplasty. Now, what you need to know is if a patient has fixed kyphosis, you cannot do a posterior decompression alone. Looking at this illustration, it goes why. So this is normal or neutral alignment. When a patient drifts into kyphosis, the spinal cord is pulled or draped anteriorly. So if the spinal cord is draped anteriorly over these anterior spondylitic ridge, and you go ahead and do a posterior decompression, either a laminectomy or a laminoplasty, you can see that that does little to nothing to actually decompress the spinal cord. So the main educational objective is here, and this question is, if a patient has fixed rigid kyphosis, then you can't do a posterior procedure alone. You need to do an anterior procedure to restore the alignment, get that spinal cord away from the anterior spondylitic ridge, and then go ahead and stabilize them and fuse them in some way. So going back to this question, these are the different images. And again, we're looking for a contraindication for laminoplasty, which is frequently tested as fixed kyphosis. So this is the first image, which is figure A. You can see that this patient has neutral alignment, which you measure from C2 to C7. This is figure B. Again, if you look at C2 to C7, this patient also has neutral alignment, although he does have some slight local kyphosis. This is image three. Again, this patient is clearly neutral if you measure the alignment from C2 to C7. And then this is figure D. And you can see here that this patient is clearly kyphotic. You can see it on the lateral radiograph. You can see it on the MRI. And then this is the last figure. Again, this patient is neutral. So the correct answer here would be figure D. That patient is kyphotic. That would be a contraindication for a laminoplasty alone. And this is really based on uh, some of the Japanese work, the two most notable studies are by Suda et al. and Chiba et al. And they both found that patients had a much worse outcome if you treated with a laminoplasty if they had local kyphosis or total kyphosis of greater than 13 degrees. Going to the next question, also on cervical myelopathy. A 68-year-old female presents with progressive loss of ability to ambulate and dexterity problems with her hands. Six months ago, she was able to walk with a cane, but now has difficulty ambulating with a walker. She also reports difficulty with her hands and needs assistance with eating. Physical exam shows limited neck extension. Imaging studies are shown in figure A, B, and C. What is the most appropriate treatment? So again, here they're asking you about treatment for cervical myelopathy. Now she has progressive functional deficit, so we know that she's going to be indicated for surgical treatment, and now they're just asking what type of procedure you should do. So looking at these images, here's her lateral T-spine. You can see that she's in kyphosis. If you look at the CT scan, you can also see that she's kyphotic. And if you look at the MRI, she also has kyphosis. And you might remember from the question stem that she has limited extension. So this is fixed kyphosis. So to get this question right, again, you need to understand the indications for treatment of cervical myelopathy and specifically the operative indications. Now, as I mentioned in the last question, whenever I think of surgical treatment of cervical myelopathy, I think there's three buckets of treatment. 
you either go anterior, you do a posterior procedure, which is a posterior laminectomy or a laminoplasty, or you have to do a combined anterior and posterior procedure. Whenever I think of this, and I think a good way to approach this on the questions, on the boards, is just think of this grid. Ask two questions. How many levels of compression there are, and is the patient in kyphosis or not? So if there's one to two levels of compression, the answer on the board is usually an anterior procedure alone, regardless of whether the patient's kyphotic or not. If the patient has greater than three levels of compression, then usually the answer is going to be either a posterior procedure alone or a combined anterior and posterior procedure, and that is dictated by which, whether the patient is kyphotic or not. If the patient is kyphotic, then you're going to have to do an anterior and posterior procedure. You're going to have to do the anterior procedure to realign the cervical spine and bring that spinal cord away from that anterior spondylitic ridge. And you're actually going to do a posterior procedure because to do a three-level anterior decompression, you're going to have to do a two-level corpectomy, likely, and that always needs to be augmented by posterior fusion or else you have the risk of that strut kicking out and that can lead to the loss of the life of that patient. So going back to this question, again, we had multi-level disease greater than three levels in a patient with fixed rigid kyphosis. And as we just said from that grid, you ask those two questions. Is there a greater than three levels of kyphosis? And the answer is yes. And does the patient have fixed rigid kyphosis? In this situation, the answer is yes. And therefore, the proper treatment is you have to go anterior to do the decompression and then stabilize them from behind. So the proper answer here is answer five. It looks like 81% of you got that correct. The second most common answer was answer four, which is just a posterior laminectomy and instrumented fusion. Again, as we discussed in this question and the previous question, if a patient has fixed kyphosis of greater than 13 degrees, that is a contraindication for either a posterior laminectomy and fusion or a laminoplasty, and therefore number four is incorrect. So going to the next question, once again on cervical myelopathy, Following a C3 through C7 laminoplasty in a myelopathic patient with cervical stenosis, the most common neurologic complication would manifest with which of the following new postoperative exam findings. So to get this question correct, you need to understand the complications of surgical treatment of cervical myelopathy. Now they'd love to ask about surgical treatment of cervical myelopathy. So let's look at the complications of surgical treatment. And the one that you need to know to get this question correct is postoperative C5 palsy. And you can see that this is frequently tested. Postoperative C5 palsy is present in about 5% of patients that undergo surgical treatment for cervical myelopathy. And the interesting thing is that the rate of this palsy is actually equivalent whether you go anterior or posterior. It usually ap appears immediately in the postoperative period, although it might take several weeks. So you know, this is kind of a, a mysterious entity in itself. Uh, the mechanism is controversial. Most people think that it has to do with the fact that the spinal cord migrates posteriorly away from those anterior compressive elements. So there's a tethering or a stretching of the nerve root, although we don't have any definitive proof of that. Uh, most of these patients do recover with time, or that, although that recovery does take a large period of time. So going back to the question, again, they were asking, 
what would be the most common new postoperative neurologic deficits? And the answer here is change in voice. Now that's very common, but that is not uh, you know, a neurologic deficit. Triceps weakness, that would be due to a C7 palsy. That is not very common. And remember, this patient had a laminal opacity from C3 to C7. Deviation of the tongue, you know, that would be caused by an injury to the hypoglossal nerve, which we'll talk about in a minute. Pitosis, meiosis, or anhydrosis, that describes Horner syndrome, which is caused by injury to the sympathetic chain with an anterior approach. And finally, biceps weakness. Now, one thing you can't not forget is the urologic levels and the strength for the different nerve roots in the cervical spine. And as you know, C5 does deltoid weakness and biceps weakness. So in this situation, a C5 palsy would present with biceps weakness. And although all of these are possible complications, by far the most common one, especially of a neurologic complication, would be biceps weakness. So that is the correct answer. It looks like 72% of you got that correct. 11% uh, of you got a change in voice with difficulty swallowing. You know, this is a complication of anterior uh, spine surgery. So you really wouldn't see this with the posterior C3 through C7 laminoplasty. So next question, again on cervical myelopathy. A 56-year-old male presents with gait imbalance and decreased manual dexterity. Sagittal T2 MRI images are shown in figure A and B. What is the most appropriate surgical treatment? So we're already thinking of cervical myelopathy based on gait imbalance and decreased manual dexterity. So when we go ahead and look at the images, here's your T2 sagittal MRI. And you can see that, see this white spot here? That's myomalacia. And then you can see he has effacement of the CSF, this bright white stuff, of, of course, is your CSF that is circumferentially surrounding the spinal cord in a normal level. And you can see here that you've lost it both anterior and posterior, and that's due to his spinal stenosis and compression on the spinal cord. Looking at the next image, you can see that they give you the sagittal alignment. Now, normally you measure the C2 to C7 sagittal alignment. That's, you know, your global sagittal alignment in the cervical spine, but you also sometimes need to measure local kyphosis, which is just in the area of the deformity. So you can see that here he has local kyphosis of 14 degrees. So to answer this question, we need to know about the treatment of cervical myelopathy. So going to the cervical myelopathy and treatment section, again, we've already talked a lot about how you treat cervical myelopathy. If patients have any degree of functional impairment, then you're going to treat them surgically. And as I said before, there's really three different treatment options or treatment buckets that they'd like to ask. One is doing an anterior cervical decompression alone. The next is doing a posterior procedure, which can be either a posterior laminectomy infusion or a laminoplasty. And the last bucket is doing an anterior and posterior procedure. Now, I like to ask these two questions to determine what is the right answer. This is pretty effective for determining the right answer on these tests. First, you wanna ask how many levels of compression there are. And then you wanna ask, is there greater than 10 degrees of kyphosis? As we mentioned, if there's one or two levels of compression and the patient is kyphotic or not kyphotic, then you wanna go anterior alone. It's if you have three or more levels of compression and the patient is 
greater than 10 degrees of kyphosis, then you have to go anterior and posterior because you have to go anterior to realign him. If he is neutral or is not kyphotic, then you can go posterior alone. So going back to our question, this patient, you asked the first question, how many levels of stenosis are there? And he pretty much has one for sure, two. So I'd say this patient has two levels of disease. And then you ask the question, is he kyphotic? And they gave you this measurement, 14 degrees. So obviously he is kyphotic. So that means that this patient would best be treated by some sort of anterior procedure. And because he only has two levels of disease, you can do an anterior decompression fusion. So looking at the answers, posterior foraminotomy, that would be incorrect. Laminectomy infusion and a hinge door uh, laminoplasty, those are all posterior procedures. So we know that the correct answer here is number two, anterior decompression alone. Looks like 84% of you got that correct, which is great. Okay, so the next two questions are on cervical radiculopathy. Treatment options for symptomatic cervical pseudoarthrosis following anterior cervical discectomy infusion include revision anterior surgery versus a posterior instrumented cervical fusion. When comparing these two treatment options, all of the following are true with regard to posterior cervical fusion except. So to get this question right, we need to understand the complications of cervical radiculopathy, and they include pseudoarthrosis, recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, hypoglossal nerve injury, and some other rare ones. To get this question right, we need to know about pseudoarthrosis. So pseudoarthrosis is common. There's a 5 to 10% rate of pseudoarthrosis for single-level fusions, and this is significantly increased with multi-level fusions, some studies showing it's up to about 30%. Risk factors for pseudoarthrosis are smoking, diabetes, and multi-level fusions. In terms of how you treat it, depends on the severity of the symptoms and other factors that are involved. So if the patient is asymptomatic and it's just seen on radiographs, you can just observe that. And that's been tested in the past. Now, if the patient is symptomatic, you got to first ask, what symptoms does he have? If he just has neck pain, then the treatment, at least on the boards, is a posterior cervical fusion. Now, if he has symptoms of cervical radiculopathy, then you have to go anterior because you have to do a revision for aminotomy and decompress those nerve roots. The primary reason you go posterior, if there's no reason to go anterior, is because there's improved fusion rates with that procedure. So going back to the question, they ask, when comparing these treatment options, which of the following are true for the posterior cervical fusion except? And I know you guys don't like these except questions. We're trying to phase them out, but they can be valuable from an educational perspective. So going through these, remember, we're looking for a false statement. Increased intraoperative blood loss, that is true. Longer postoperative hospitalization, that is true of posterior surgery. Decreased revision surgery rate, that is a true statement. Decreased fusion rate, now that is a false statement. And the last one, increased complication rate, that's actually true. So the question is, if there's an increased intraoperative blood loss, longer postoperative hospitalization, and increased complication rate, why do you do a posterior surgery, uh, posterior revision over an anterior revision? And the, the reason is, is because there's a much higher fusion rate with a posterior revision. And this is based on the work by Carry On, and they looked at 
patients that had either an anterior revision or a posterior revision, and patients who had an anterior revision had a 44% rate of requiring an additional revision surgery as opposed to only 2% of the patients who had a posterior revision, and that's really the literature that drives the fact that we now consider, at least on the boards, that the posterior revision is the ideal treatment or the indicated treatment for uh, pseudarthrosis. So going to the next question, again, another question on cervical radiculopathy. A 49-year-old male presents with left arm pain of four weeks duration. A T2-weighted axial MRI is shown in figure A. Which of the following statements would most accurately describe his symptoms and physical exam findings? So to get this question right, there's one thing you need to know about the anatomy of the cervical spine and how it differs from the lumbar spine. There's two key differences that you need to identify. One, in the cervical spine, there's a pedicle nerve root mismatch, and that means that the C6 nerve root travels above the C6 pedicle. This is different than in the lumbar spine, where the L5 nerve root travels below the L5 pedicle. The other difference is that in the cervical spine, the nerve roots travel horizontally, which means that even if you have a central or foraminal disc, they affect the nerve, same nerve root, where in the lumbar spine, they affect different nerve roots. So let's look at this illustration that describes this. So here, you can see in the cervical spine, the C6 nerve root travels under the C5 pedicle, where in the lumbar spine, the L4 nerve root travels under the L4 pedicle. And you can see that there's this mismatch. What explains this mismatch is, remember, we have an extra nerve root. We have the C8 nerve root, where we do not have a C8 vertebral body, and that's where you have the jump down and describes that difference. Now the other difference is that in the lumbar spine, the nerve roots descend before they exiting. This is different than in the cervical spine where they just go straight horizontal. And what that means is in the cervical spine, whether you have a disc centrally or paracentrally or way out in the foramen, they still affect the same nerve root. This is different than the lumbar spine, where if you have a paracentral disc, it affects the descending nerve root, as seen here, where if you have a far lateral disc herniation, it affects the exiting nerve root. So once you understand that, you understand why in the cervical spine, uh, symptoms are slightly different, and they ask a lot of questions on this, and you just have to know this. You have to know that a C5 radiculopathy presents with deltoid and biceps weakness, and a diminished biceps reflex. A C6 radiculopathy presents with wrist extension weakness and a diminished brachioradialis reflex. Those patients usually have numbness, which they localize to the sum. A C7 radiculopathy presents with triceps and wrist flexion weakness. They will have a decreased triceps reflex, and these patients are going to complain of paresthesias in the index, middle, and ring finger. So going back to our question, they give us an MRI, you see a C5-6 disc herniation. This is in the paracentral position, but it doesn't matter if it was here or far lateral. It's always going to affect the same nerve root. And because this is at C5-6, this is going to affect the C6 nerve root. So all you need to know is what a C6 radiculopathy does. We know, as we just discussed, a C6 radiculopathy leads to brachialis weakness and wrist extension weakness. So the correct answer would be number four.
So this is basic anatomy. You're going to see several questions about the nerve roots in the cervical spine. These are the layups that you definitely want to get correct. That's all for this spine question review session. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets audio review, a daily podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you tomorrow.